Thank you all. And Kenny, thank you for that beautiful introduction. What I love most about Kenny's introductions is that he tells you enough about what I'm here to say so that I won't have to say a whole bunch of things and in the best possible way because um, uh, Kenny and Nina asked me to talk today about personal and planetary healing in the emerging environmental health movement. So he's really given you an introduction to our work on chemicals and I'm going to place that work in a broader framework. Uh, first I just want to say, um, you know, this annual gathering of our tribe is just such a powerful experience, just to be in the room together. And I want to say a special welcome to all the pioneers who are gathered by satellite. You know, I was looking at the list, you have it in your, uh, in your brochure, of where the pioneers are gathered by satellite, and I want to read you uh, uh, the following states where they're gathered. In Michigan, Traverse City, Michigan, where pioneer Catherine Porter and her dad Jim and many friends are listening. And Catherine and Jim, we all send our love and prayers to you and prayers especially to you, Jim, as you uh, uh, live through this uh, illness that you've been living with. Uh, our love and our support is with you. Uh, in Illinois, in Colorado, in Arizona, in Oregon, and in New Hampshire, does that list of states sound familiar to you? <laughs> you know, pioneer uh, consciousness is not only growing on the coasts, it's growing throughout the country, it's growing around the world. And so our special prayers and support are with the pioneers in the swing states because the fate of the earth is really with them over the next two or three weeks. And so anything we can do to support you, friends, pioneers, in the swing states, call out, because we want to be there with you. You really carry a very deep responsibility. So I was asked to talk about personal and planetary healing in the emerging environmental health movement. And for the last 30 years, as Kenny said, I've worked at this center called Commonweal in Bolinas. Uh, where we work with kids with learning and behavior disorders, and we do these week-long retreats for cancer patients. Some of you know my colleague, Rachel Naomi Raman, and her extraordinary work transforming medicine, uh, just extraordinary, uh, finding the heart of healing for physicians and nurses and other healthcare practitioners. Uh, Burr Henneman's remarkable work changing California ocean policy and creating a model for the sustainable uh, use of oceans around the world. Uh, Charlotte Brody, Commonweal's new executive director, and my wife, Cheryl Patton, and Davis Bals, and uh, Steve Heilig, and Jeanette uh, Swafford, many others working together on environmental health on the issues that Kenny mentioned to you. And we're very pleased that Penny Livingston Stark and James Stark are now bringing permaculture to the Commonweal Garden, which is uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful contribution. So. Uh, that just gives you a sense. Basically, Commonweal is an instrument of human service. It's just a place for some people to do some good work on behalf of personal and planetary healing. And we've learned something from this work over the last 30 years. Um, tomorrow, we start the 120th week-long Commonweal Cancer Help Program. And I am always in these programs. And uh, on Friday, which is my 61st birthday, I'll be in the Cancer Help Program. 
And I say that because I try to be in a cancer help program on my birthday every year because there is no place I would rather be on my birthday than in the incredible magic of a circle of women and men living with a life-threatening illness where they transform tragedy and the deepest possible loss into healing and wisdom and love. And so that experience is the formative experience of my adult life for the last 20 years. And I've learned more from that work with women with metastatic breast cancer and young children trying to understand how to live through that experience than I've learned from any other community of which I'm a part. So uh, that work in the Cancer Help Program is for me the sole work of my adult life and it's the work that informs all of our work with chemicals and environmental health because it's out of our experience with kids with learning and behavior disorders, it's out of our experience with cancer and it's out of our work with a dozen or twenty or thirty other diseases through the collaborative on health and the environment that we participate in this effort to replace toxic chemicals with green chemistry and to remake the products and technologies of our time. Um, in the Cancer Help Program and over the last 30 years, the other major movement that I've participated in has been the mind-body health movement, the integrative medicine movement, which so many of you have been active in too. And, you know, I have watched and participated as the mind-body health movement did this extraordinary work to completely transform over the last 25 years our understanding of what healing is. On a horizontal axis, it enormously increased the number of modalities available to patients and practitioners. On an ascending vertical axis, it took us up, to mental, up into mental, emotional, and spiritual approaches to healing that we hadn't fully understood before. But there was a great failure in the mind-body-health movement, and that failure was the failure to ground our understanding of healing in the social, the economic, and the environmental determinants of health. We did a great job of including homeopathy and acupuncture and massage and new modalities. We did a great job of bringing psychological and spiritual approaches to healing. But how many holistic healthcare practitioners that you know systematically talk about and educate their patients and their cells and their health professional communities about the effects of poverty, of toxic chemicals, of climate change, of genetically modified organisms on human health. And it was an extraordinary failure given that the mind-body health movement sees itself as a holistic movement. You know, how could we include all these modalities which really the effects of which are not all proven, let's just take homeopathy as a single example, when the effects of poverty, the effects of climate change, the effects of toxic chemicals on human health are profound and well understood and well documented. So it's been an extraordinary failure of this movement of ours in human consciousness that's been so effective on so many other levels that we haven't deeply made the link between personal and planetary healing, particularly since so many of us particularly since so many of us were part of that parallel emerging movement in agriculture, in, uh, in toxics, and climate change, and environmental justice, and peace work, 
that constitutes the, the great movement that brings forward the necessity of planetary healing. So it's just a striking thing that if the last 30 years of work in integrative health has been about personal healing, surely the next 30 years has got to be about grounding in consciousness and practice the intimacy of the linkage between personal and planetary healing. Because the truth is, as we all know, that we are living conservation biology scientists tell us, in an age of extinctions, that we are driving biodiversity back 65 million years to the lowest level of vitality since the end of the age of dinosaurs, that this is the sixth great spasm of extinctions in the history of the Earth, and that the five great drivers of this spasm of extinction are climate change, the depletion of the ozone layer, toxic chemicals, the destruction of natural habitat, and invasive species. That's what the scientists tell us, that what is causing this huge drop in the vitality of the tree of life are those five drivers of extinction. But the, we also know there are other threats. There is the nuclear threat of renewed nuclear weapons development in the United States, new emphasis on nuclear energy in the United States, the efforts of the United States to weaponize space, the potential of nuclear materials falling into terrorist hands, there are the infectious threats of viral and infectious diseases which are resurgent and again so deeply linked to the disruption of ecosystems. HIV from disrupted African ecosystems. The West Nile virus spreads in the U.S. with climate change. Mad cow disease with the insane livestock feeding practices that cause that. The annual flu epidemics and other viruses emerging from intense crowding and poverty in Asia. These infectious epidemics you know, are at least as great a potential threat to human health as well-being as any of the others. Then there are the new technologies, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and robotics, and Bill Joy has so brilliantly written in Wired magazine about how these indicate that we are moving from an age of weapons of mass destruction to an age of technologies of mass destruction, because each of these three information technologies gives, uh, gives uh, the possibility of genetically modified organisms or other uh, technologies that can, that can multiply out of control. You know, we were told we didn't need to, to worry about this in agriculture, that the threat of genetically modified organisms spreading in agriculture wasn't going to develop, and yet now it is, you know, increasingly pandemic. So that's a very real threat as well. And finally, the threat of poverty and income disparities the growing poverty and disparity of income within and among countries is one of the greatest of all threats to human and ecosystem health. And you know, it's not just poverty, it's income disparities as well. There is a almost perfect gradient in research between where you stand in terms of socioeconomic status and your health. It's not just poor people. The greater the disparities, the lower the social capital and the greater the distrust and hostility of the culture, and the greater the impact on human health. So we can't limit ourselves if we're thinking holistically about personal and planetary healing to just a few threats. If we analyze the threats we've talked about, we can see that of the five drivers of this spasm of extinctions that we're in, the first three, climate change, ozone depletion, and toxic chemicals, 
were all brought about by the 20th century hydrocarbon century. And this hydrocarbon century brought American hegemony, it created the global post-colonial oil empire, and today, as we all well know, the energy companies essentially control U.S. foreign policy, and historians will tell you that oil has been at the heart of virtually all the major 20th century wars. You know, the great uh, Swedish oncologist, Carl Henrik Robert, who created the natural step, he understood that as an, as an oncologist, he understood that we can't pump hydrocarbons and heavy metals out from under the Earth's surface at, at rates faster than the, than the biosphere ecosystems and organisms can absorb, or we change the climate and we destroy the biological structure of life. So it's basically a simple scientific fact that anybody wanting to look at this can understand. We can't take these things out from under the surface of the earth where they've been safely stored, transmute them, pump them into the atmosphere without changing the climate and destroying life. You know, just a very, very simple explanation of it by a Swedish oncologist. On an economic level, the decisive victory of capitalism over socialism has resulted in an acceleration of globalization and the rigging of the world trade system against the interests of poor people in developing countries. And every industrial sector, if you think about it, by definition, exploits human and natural resources, externalizes social and environmental costs, and continuously generates both ecological and social degradation in, as Kenny mentioned, a relentless drive to the bottom, always seeking lower wages and less environmental regulation. So the world market system, while it does allocate resources very, very efficiently from a profit perspective, which is why it uh, so decisively overcame socialism, but if it works without a moral framework, then it destroys life. And so the only way that we can make the global capitalist system work in the service of life is to create a moral framework for it. And the whole purpose of the independent sector, the citizen sector, the NGO sector, whatever you want to call bioneer consciousness, the whole purpose of it is to create the moral framework to frame the capitalist system so that it serves life rather than destroying life. And finally, while I'm just doing the diagnostic piece, and then I'll get to the hope, uh, I just want to mention that on a political level, I used to teach political science at Yale, and, and one of the things one studies is the history of hegemonic powers. On a political level, the United States is acting in a way that is absolutely classically true of declining hegemonic powers in the twilight of their hegemony. And, what it is doing is that hegemonic powers come into power by representing a broad consensus of shared values, as the United States did at the end of World War II. But as they decline, they begin to act more and more selfishly and using power in a more and more brutally self-serving way, rather than representing the consensus that brought them to power. Peter Goldmark, the past president of the Rockefeller Foundation and then the editor of the International Herald Tribune, has beautifully said that what is taking place in our time is that the moral center of gravity in an international affairs 
is moving decisively from the United States to Europe. And Europe now has the soft power which the United States once had, and it is taking the leadership in virtually every international regime, whether it be on climate change or, as Kenny mentioned, on chemicals, uh, on, on, uh, on the international court, you name it. Europe is taking the lead, and the United States characteristically refuses to sign these international treaties. It doesn't go unrecognized around the world that this is what's going on. So, um, so that I think you might disagree with pieces of my diagnosis of, of, of the patient planet Earth, but you might think that at least some of the pieces I've gotten right, and if I had more time I could do a more nuanced job on the diagnosis. But where is the hope? I think actually there is a surprising amount of hope available. If we agree with uh, the great scientist Paul Ehrlich, that you can understand the impact of humanity on Earth as a function of our population, our consumption, and our technologies. Impact equals population times consumption times technology. If we understand that and look at those three factors in the equation, with respect to population, it's a simple fact that the education and empowerment of women means a world of fewer wanted, loved children. That's a simple fact about how to deal with population. With consumption, all we need to do is restore the ethic of frugality that was the dominant ethic in the world up to World War II when the propaganda devices of World War II were turned into the advertising industry so that we could sell products in an endless cycle to keep the whole industrial engine moving. Frugality matters and we can return to a frugality in the service of life. In technology, a society that takes a precautionary approach to technologies and products, chemicals and many others, can and will, by green chemistry and green energy, lighten the load that a smaller and more conscious civilization of reverence will place on the planet. So we know how to go. We know that if we love our children and give women power, we know that if we reclaim frugality, and we know that if we move toward green energy and, green, and uh, green chemicals and green technologies, that we can do this work. Well, that may sound all very well, but then at the level of actually doing it, how do we do it? And here let me go to the issue of toxic chemicals and environmental health. The last decade has seen an explosion of work on toxic chemicals and environmental health. First, there's the extraordinary new science pioneered by Theo Colburn and Pete Myers, Sandra Steingraber, and many other scientists showing that chemicals at some chemicals, endocrine disrupting chemicals, at infinitely lower doses than we understood before, affect the developing fetus in a wide range of ways that can affect all of development afterward and that can affect our immune systems, our intelligence, our reproductive capacity, and dozens if not hundreds of diseases, disorders, and conditions. That new science is driving the emerging environmental health movement. Secondly, uh, this point that, that it's not just a few diseases caused by high levels of chemical exposures, it's dozens, if not hundreds, of diseases, disorders, and conditions 
that in, to which chemicals are by no means the single cause, but they are a contributing factor. And that is becoming more and more clear. Then you take that new science and you put it in the hands of grassroots activists like Margie Richard of Norco, Louisiana, who go, won the Goldman Environmental Award for her amazing leadership of concerned citizens of Norco in getting her community to be able to move away from a shell chemical plant. Uh, then you have industrial sector campaigns like Healthcare Without Harm uh, that Kenny mentioned. You have the patient and health professional groups like the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. You have the precautionary principle work and so forth. And so that's, that's what's happening in the collaborative, that's what's happening in the environmental health sector. But the real point I want to make is that this same grounded, winning work is taking place in a whole bunch of different sectors, in climate change, in trade and globalization, in the privatization of water, in the landmines treaty, in women's rights, in the resurgent labor movement, in the environmental justice movement. You know, the strength of the right is that it holds power, wealth, and concentrated political discipline, and which it uses to divide and conquer. Our strength is that we are everywhere. We are in the music. We are in the music. We are in the eyes of the disenfranchised. We are everywhere. So the deepest question is where we find the collective will to make this great shift. And to explore that, I'm just going to take a moment uh, to go back to the issue of personal and planetary healing. I had a heart attack a year and four months ago, and like many, I'm doing very well, but like many others who've lived with cancer diagnosis or a heart attack, one of the things you learn is the profound impact that it can have on consciousness. That's the lesson of the last 20 years of the Cancer Health Program. Ask yourself, as we move into this age of extinctions, how many of us have a very similar sense of deep loss as a community about the wounding of the whole earth? In other words, ask yourself whether the wounding of the whole earth that is taking place in this age of extinctions isn't the same wounding that takes place for us as individuals when we face that kind of loss. It's a deep psychological truth that human beings learn from suffering and loss. It is reflected in all the great religions of the world. It's reflected in the whole shamanic tradition of the initiatory illness that brings the shaman to death's door before she can return to lead others through suffering. Carl Jung captured this in his archetype of the wounded healer. Um, the history of civilizations tells us this same story, that great wars and great tragedies shift consciousness for good or for ill. Some cultures grow in wisdom and others fall into fascism, militarism, and other forms of violence. After September 11th, Remember the awesome sense of community that we all had and that was shared with us around the world. If we had been led with wisdom, we would have made sacrifices to move toward a sustainable world. We were misled. The great truth of our time is that we have entered a period where the wounding of all life unlike, is unlike any other period in human history. And it is only if we use this great wounding to find what Ramdas calls fierce grace, 
that we can find the consciousness to move through this period of time into a sustainable world. Our task, as T.S. Eliot put it, is to come back to the place we began, to original human consciousness, and to know it for the first time. It is from that consciousness that we can find the will to transform the spirit that brings us together into the action that will create a sustainable world. Thank you very much.